Okay. Uh, so this morning, uh, we're going to continue our discussion uh, regarding Sorry, got everything. I don't know what I've done. Okay, <laughs> regarding uh, modern idols. And uh, just want to reiterate that as we look at um, idolatry, and we, we, we kind of defined it last last week, we talked about uh, its simple definition, anything that would replace or decrease God. It would make him less than he is uh, or that would replace him in our life. And it may not be that it completely replaces him, but there may be some area in our life that we're unwilling to give something up, that he, that he would be replaced or supplanted in a particular area. And so we that, that's our simple definition of idolatry. And we looked at the biblical foundations of uh, God being the only God, God's command to worship him wholeheartedly and single-heartedly, uh, and, and sort of establish the foundation that he is first and foremost, and he should maintain that place in our lives and in our hearts and minds. And this morning, what I want to do is look at a couple of idols, really two. The second one has a couple of categories. And, and as we kind of closed last week, we talked about there not being anything new under the sun. So we're not going to identify a new idol. We call this modern idols because they sort of take a different form than they maybe have historically. But it's the same heart. Oh, I just got this one going. Thank you. Sean's watching out for everyone here. He's <laughs> sure people can hear. Uh, but. So I just want to dive into that uh, just for just for a moment here and and look at this. Uh, first off, maybe maybe not. We <laughs> probably going to give me some support back there. Um, it's probably more effective, and I need to practice these slides. I apologize so. We're going to have to pause. Oh, there we go. I think it's working. I'm in my clicker. Let's see. I don't know. It's broken. It's probably, who knows? Well, we're going to have to go up. <laughs> if you feel like you get it worked out, Sally, I'll try it again. So the first idol that I want to talk about, and, and again, we're, we're going to talk about it general categories. Because the general categories uh, help us not to latch on to something so heavily that we miss what the spirit may be operating in us. But what the spirit may be... Uh, convicting us of. So the first is the idol of self. And I just want to say that uh, we don't follow the money. Okay. Well, while we often identify idols as things, uh, you know, that car, motorcycle, the whatever may be a particular job, 
we tend to, in modern society today, in Christianity, we tend to uh, let those things be our idols, and we, and we fill in the blanks with those things. But all of that, each one of those things, whether it's uh, a car or money or whatever it may be, house, uh, you know, the dream house, all of those things simply satisfy a deeper inordinance, which is a big word that just means inappropriate, right? Inordinate is an inappropriate desire. I had to look up and see if inordinance was actually a word. And it is, in fact, a word. And it's the noun. It's the, it's the thing that we would put in that place. And so within us, all of these things, this desire for money, that we would, we would fill that in, uh, whatever it might be, those material things that we would identify as idols, while they may be a manifestation of that, really the idolatry is something deeper. And that's the point. It's a heart condition. It isn't the thing itself. It's where our heart has found itself. Uh, some heart condition that we have reserved as our own and outside of the jurisdiction of our creator. When we look at what we actually deserve, right? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. This is what we deserve. Yet we serve a creator who is in his goodness and his mercy has replaced all that. And for you and I as believers has exchanged death for life. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ his son, our Lord. This is, this is where we're at. The idol of self fills something in and we've put something in the place of God. And we have to look within at the deeper heart condition, not simply the outward thing. We want to address the heart. So, I will be like the most high. Who knows who said that? When we read that in scripture, who is being discussed? Does anybody know? This is the interactive part. <laughs> you know it. Say it loudly. Lucifer, right? But Satan was the one that said, I will be like the most high. I'm going to rise up. I'm going to sit on his throne. I'm going to be equal to him. When we talk about the idol of self. This is ultimately what we are doing. We are exalting ourselves in that particular area of our life or anywhere to the position of God. The idol of self will do this. Look with me in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. We're going to look at some illustrations here as we see this come together. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So in Genesis chapter 3, we all know that this is the fall. This is where this happens. This is where the serpent, who is more cunning, comes in and he tempts Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one thing that Adam and Eve were told not to do. Here it is. And the temptation that he puts before them. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. And gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Okay, so we have a couple of temptations thrown out there, a couple of those things thrown out there. Uh, but ultimately, what it breaks down to is rejection of God and rebellion. 
I'm going to remove God from his position of authority who said I shouldn't do this, watching out for my best. He is the creator. And if everything was very good, it was perfect, but this one thing was uh, removed from my jurisdiction, something that I shouldn't participate in, something that I shouldn't do, something that I shouldn't engage in, that he's removed it for my benefit. And he'd warn them, in the day that you eat of the tree of, the, uh, of this tree, if you eat it, you're going to die. So God was removing it for our benefit. And we look at this and we see uh, what's happened here. We see the temptation that's put before Adam and Eve. We see that they decided that we can know better than God. That we can exalt ourselves to a position of authority and jurisdiction. I can make the determination more accurately than the creator. And therefore, we're going to eat. And, and I say all that, jump with me to verse 22, because as God looks over everything that's happened, he's, he's given out the consequences for having eaten of the fruit to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man. Ultimately, we know that death is a result of all, uh, of all of this, and we know that from Romans chapter 5. But in verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now let us put forth his hand and take also... At lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Right? The idea is that what was put before them was that you can be God. This is a temptation, and God realized this. Realize that's that's putting him pretty low, isn't it? God knew that this was the heart. God knew that this was the temptation, the idol of self that I will exalt myself, I will be like the most high. That somehow. God would remove or withhold something from us that was good or beneficial. Make one wise or make one like God. This is the temptation that was before them. This is the idol that they chose. Look with me in Daniel chapter 4. In Daniel chapter 4, we find Nebuchadnezzar. And you'll all remember because we were studying Daniel chapter 4 not too long ago. But in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we find a couple of things happening. Uh, he, has, um, he has a dream that Daniel interprets. This is the dream where God is saying you will be thrown out. You'll be like a beast in the field. And there's a period of time that you're going to lose your sanity, for lack of a better term. This is where this is happening. But we pick up in Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. Uh, excuse me. Uh, yeah, the, the prophecy talks about that. It says in verse 28, all this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. So he was cast from... Uh, from his kingdom. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? So Nebuchadnezzar says, listen, even though I may be a delegated authority, and we know that from scripture, right? Whether it's Hebrews, uh, uh, excuse me, Romans 13, uh, we, we find that God delegates his authority and is given specific instruction to those who are in leadership. And we talked about this. 
So he's a delegated authority. Everything that he's been given is given to him by God. As we go through the Old Testament and we look at Nebuchadnezzar and the rise of Babylon, it's specifically purposed by God. So they may be an instrument of correction for God's people, Israel. Yet here is Nebuchadnezzar saying, I am worthy of all worship, of praise, uh, recognition, and majesty that is appropriate only for God. And look at this city that's been built, that's been constructed as a manifestation of my glory. And ultimately, at that point, is when Nebuchadnezzar is, loses his sanity. It says in verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from of heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. He'd exalted himself to a position of authority that was not his. I will be like the most high. I am worthy. I am equal to. I deserve whatever it may be. And here in King Nebuchadnezzar's, uh, right, he had the dream house. He had the fancy chariots. He, he had all the stuff. But those were just outward manifestations of what was inside of the idolatry that was in his heart. In James chapter 4, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, if you'll turn there with me. <clears throat> we read in this passage the results. And we get some insight into the heart behind. It says, from whence come wars and fightings among you, come they not hence, even of your own lusts that war in your members. You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. So you adulterers and adulteresses, you know Know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. We deserve, the idea here is that we somehow deserve or are worthy. That we would say to ourselves or that we would hold or harbor within our heart the idol of self to the extent that I am deserving of whatever I want, the lust of my flesh, all of those things that I would consume upon to the extent that I would be willing to kill to get it. That it would be right and appropriate for me to take what isn't mine so that I might satisfy myself. And we perceive it as being justifiable. That the result would outweigh the means by which we took it. The idol of self. We would exalt ourselves. We would remove God from his throne, make him less or replace him completely in all areas or in just some areas. The idol of self. Now, we talked about last week that with each one of these idols that we may worship in the Old Testament, as we see them, uh, the nation of Israel falling to idolatry and they have particular offerings and sacrifices that they would bring. And each one of these idols that we would harbor within our heart 
has a requisite or a required offering, something that we must give up in order to participate in that idolatry. And we need to recognize that we need to understand that we are doing just that. That our worship has been displaced, that our trust in our creator, the Lord, uh, has been removed and we have now put trust and worship in something else. So when it comes to the idol of self, the first thing that we're going to find is that there is that we are subject to the consequence of sin. We see this all the way back in Genesis when Adam and Eve fall prey to this same kind of idol and 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 we we find that they reap the consequence of their sin. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. If you don't know that verse, Galatians chapter 6 verses 7 through 8 says, "Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. For us to yield and to worship the idol of self, we're going to have to suffer the consequence of our sin. God is in mocked. As we look in Genesis chapter 3, we find those consequences laid out. The serpent has consequence. We find that Adam and Eve have specific consequence and ultimately the consequence of death, which God had told them, I am reserving you from, I am removing that from you by commanding you not to eat of this tree. The consequence of sin is the, one, the first requisite offering to worship the idol of self. Second, we as God's children will, will reap correction. In Hebrews chapter 12, God talks about and gives very direct instruction. He says to you and I that we are his children, that he's going to correct us because he loves us. Which for us is a benefit. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he corrects. And it says, he scourges every son whom he receives. So for you and I, as we fall into this idolatry, we would expect that God would correct us, that he would bring us back. Just as we see the nation of Israel, his people, the example that we look to for God's interaction with you and I as believers, his people, Whenever they fell into adultery, whenever they fell into idolatry, God would correct them. He sent Babylon. He sent the Assyrians. He sent different nations to bring them into bondage, to cause them suffering, as it were, as a means of bringing their heart back to him. Removing the idolatry. And in the same way, we're going to have the same correction. God is going to put his finger on that area of our life that we are reserving, that idol of self in whatever form or place that he finds it, and he will draw it out. He'll remove it from us. He'll correct it. In Daniel chapter 4, if you'll turn back there with me, Daniel chapter 4, and I don't know if you noticed the introduction to that, but, but it's Nebuchadnezzar speaking, and Daniel is effectively acting as a scribe there. And in the first 
verses of that particular chapter, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God has wrought toward me. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar says, I want you to learn the lesson that I learned. That when I was exalted, that when I worshiped the idol of self, I was corrected. I was brought down. And ultimately, for that seven-year period where he lived out in the wilderness eating grass, and his hair grew out as like feathers, and his fingernails grew out like claws, and we read this, and he was just running with the animals. Look at me in verse 34 of Daniel chapter 4. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. When Nebuchadnezzar learned the lesson, when he submitted to the correction, and it says, I looked to heaven. I looked to the creator. I looked to him who has a jurisdiction, who is worthy of all worship, and he alone is worthy of worship. When I turned my heart to him, then I was restored. Then the corrective measure was removed. The lesson had been learned. He continues on in verse 35, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. Right here, I, Nebuchadnezzar, thought I was something that I was worthy or deserving, that somehow I could be like the Most High in some way, shape, or form. But all the inhabitants of the earth, by comparison to God, by comparison to our Creator, are nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? Nebuchadnezzar learned who the sovereign of all of creation was. Who alone is worthy of worship. Who alone is displaced when we yield to the idol of self. And when he learned that lesson, when he submitted to that correction, he was restored. The third offering that we're going to have to give to worship the idol of self is the loss of that which is desired. The loss of that which is desired. We who have raised children realize that oftentimes our children will throw a fit or a tantrum for the thing that they want. We've all seen it. We've all been in the grocery store. We've all seen the kid on the floor kicking and screaming because he wants the candy bar or whatever it may be that he wants. We've all witnessed this. We've all probably maybe done it when we were, of course, when we were younger. Today, it may take a slightly different form, but this desire that would cause us to act irrationally and out of context and out of character because we've exalted ourselves to a position of I will be like the most high. We are in that moment putting down the offering of that which is desired because which of you as parents are going to submit to that? And say, yeah, that's, that is behavior worthy or deserving of that reward. 
when we exalt ourselves in that position, put ourselves on that pedestal, we're going to lose that which we desire. In James chapter 4, verse 2, James chapter 4, verse 2, it says, you lust and you have not. And the reason he continues on, the reason that you don't have it, he says, is because you desire it amiss. You desire it with a, outside of the context which it is appropriate to desire it in. You lust and have not. You kill and you desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war. You have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not, he says in verse 3, because you ask amiss, you may consume it upon your lust. Earlier in the book of James, it says that all good gifts come down from the Father of life. Here is God who will give us all good things. He won't withhold that from us, which is necessary for us. For his glory, for his honor, he'll, he'll grant us those things that are necessary. But when we begin to worship ourselves to the extent that we are somehow deserving, or that somehow we should be exalted or lifted up, like Naaman in the book of Esther. When King Ahasuerus says, listen, who, what should be done to he that the king desires to honor? We've all seen the VeggieTales, we all know, right? And Naaman is certainly, he's talking about me. And he says, well, this is what should happen. You should give him the king's ring. You should let him ride the king's horse. You should put him on the king's robe. He should be like the most high. He should be equal to you, king. When he rides by, people should say, look, that's the king. Oh, no, that's Haman. There should be. There should be no difference in his mind. That's how you honor somebody. When I feel as if I deserve that thing, I've earned it, I am Haman, and God, you should honor me. We have displaced, we've reversed the roles between ourselves and God. And it says here in, in James, you consume upon your lust, and God is not going to do that. He's, he, he's not going to worship you. Nor should he worship you. We're going to lose that which is desired. We can't obtain it. It's an inappropriate thing for us. It's an inordinance. And God's not going to grant that. Turn with me to John chapter 5 for just a moment. John chapter 5, verse 39. Here is Jesus correcting the Pharisees. And I'll just put you in remembrance that the, the, the scribes and Pharisees, the uh, religious elite, those who are, are leading Israel in a spiritual sense, right? They're experts in the law. They should be familiar with the word of God. They should know what it says. They should recognize that, hey, all of this is pointing toward Jesus, and in their zeal, we'll remember that they created all these additional laws that made the law of God of no effect. And that's what Jesus condemned them for. He condemned them for their hypocrisy. 
that here you are, you would offer your offering, but it's out of your uh, prosperity. It's out of all of those things. It's not really an offering. It's just going through the motions. When you fast, you desire to look as if you're fasting. You want everyone to see. When you pray, you do it on the street corner so everyone will see just how spiritual you are. The idol of self. Look at me. I'm worth it. I'm worthwhile. You should be like me, just as the publican and the sinner, excuse me, the publican and the Pharisee went to the temple. I believe it's Luke chapter 11. And Jesus said, look at this Pharisee, he prays, and he says he prays with himself. And his prayer was, oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that publican, that sinner over there. And this publican, this, this sinful man who knows his state, he pounds on his chest. He won't even lift his eyes to heaven and says, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. Jesus says he went home justified. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees and he says, search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and they are they which testify of me. Here are the Pharisees, these who are fallen prey heavily to the idol of self, to self-righteousness. Those who would say, be like us. This is the standard. We've established what righteousness is. And if you just do this, you'll be okay. They studied the scriptures. They look for it and look for it and look for it thinking that by keeping them, by obeying them, by creating all these laws and rules to preserve all of that and to honor it, we'll have eternal life. But they have the loss of what they are desiring. All of the scriptures, everything there speaks of Jesus Christ from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's a testimony and a witness of Jesus Christ, of God's redemptive purpose for mankind since the fall. They lost what they desired. They missed what they desired most because they wouldn't give up the idol of self. The second idol that I want to talk about this morning, and really, like I said, there's only two. This next one has two parts. And I didn't know exactly how to phrase this, whether it was man's understanding, but ultimately I settled on man's belief. Man's belief. Because when we talk about man's belief, when we talk about these next two, it's really a matter of faith and where our faith is placed. This idol, the, the idol of man's belief, replaces God and his word with one of two things or maybe a combination of both. And while these may be different manifestations for believers and non-believers, it, it'll make sense. You'll have, they'll look different. But both believers fall prey to this and non-believers fall prey to this. They're both still rooted in faith. First, society. And what I mean by society is ultimately whoever's screaming the loudest is in charge. They get to make the rules. And somehow we're going to submit to that. That becomes the God that we're going to worship popular opinion, political correctness, all of that, it's society in general. 
for you and I as believers, think about this. That's our submission to those who would suppress truth and unrighteousness. Second, and this one I think is the most prevalent in the church, is evidence. We're going to be careful when we talk about evidence because it isn't always inappropriate. We're going to reiterate that here in a moment. But evidence, man's belief, whether it's science, whether it's uh, apologetics from an evidential standpoint, those are things uh, that we would build up potentially. And we're going to look at the problem with that. We're going to look at how that idol takes shape within the life of the believer. Ultimately, it's a faith issue. We're looking for some enlightenment outside of God and his word. See, there's a light bulb there. All right, let's talk about society. The, the manifestation of man's belief of that idol in society. Ultimately, the <laughs> anybody who watched Star Trek, right? You understand. I thought this was a pretty apt picture. I mean, it's it's like current events, right? But Captain James T. Kirk, he said that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And while there may be a modicum, of a small, you know, particle of truth in that in certain certain circumstances. What happens is that that has become the modus operandi, the, the MO of society. The needs of the many, whoever's screaming the loudest, whoever can get the most people together, whatever it may be, that's how we're going to operate. That's what's going to become the new status quo, the new right and wrong. When we look at uh, the manifestations of, of idolatry, would say that man's organization of culture and its norm should be submitted to, uh, and and perhaps, and especially perhaps, if it contradicts what God says. As I said, this is man's, when we as the church submit to uh, man's idea, when we submit to the dictates of society we are submitting to a to a thought process that is antagonistic and suppressing of the truth yet this happens all the time we see entire denominations that have succumbed to this we see entire churches uh, and believers in general who have fallen prey to the idea that whether it's marriage being defined by god as a single man and a single woman all the way back in Genesis, and that being declared perfect by our creator. Or sexuality and what that is defined as, the biology and the creation, the sovereignty of God in making you a male or a female. Ethics, what is right and wrong, what we should do, how society should operate within itself, economic policies, political policies, all of those things being subject to God's will, yet we as the church ashamed of what God has said, and we will fall to the idol of society. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 
Beginning in verse 14, Paul would write, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel? I want to just pause there for a moment. Here we have this description of all these things that are antithetical. They don't work together. They can't go together. And ultimately, Christ or a false god. That's the choice that we have. We're either going to choose Christ or we're going to submit to the idol of society, the whims of man. He continues on. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. There, there shouldn't be anything within us that wouldn't stand wholly and completely for the Lord. Now, outside of the church, that's going to look differently. There are going to be those who will take this up all the time. There are going to be those who, who push this idol forward. But for you and I as believers, we find in verse 17, our marching orders, if you will, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. He tells you and I as believers to stand firm and to come out from that. To stand in opposition to it. To come out and be separate from it. We are not going to yield to the dictates of society. That we're going to define things as God has defined them. That we're going to operate in accordance with his revealed will. That scripture and scripture alone is going to be the source of truth. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8 for a moment. Romans 8. Verses 6 through 8. Romans 8, 6 through 8. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So there's a couple of things for you and I that we need to understand. Number one, our unbelieving family, neighbors, friends, co-workers, we can't expect them to act as if they were born-again believers. They won't. They're not going to. The carnal mind, that which is separate and enemy of God, which is our natural state, can't be subject to it. They're much more likely to fall to the idol of Man's belief, in particular society, because it's popular, it doesn't come under fire. When you sit around at the break room and, and, and you discuss political events and those kinds of things, more often than not, there's a lot of agreement. Because I don't want to be the odd one out. I don't want to be the one that is holding the line, that is saying something contrary, that's now going to be picked on and become the target whether it's politics, it doesn't matter what it is. That's more often than not the case. For you and I as believers, 
Bible tells you and I, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, that you are a city set on a hill. And we're not to be hidden. That he didn't light us, that he didn't put us on that candle stand to shed light so that we might be under a bushel, that we might just adopt the popular opinion. You see how we fall prey to this as believers. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. We are to be better. God has commanded more from you and I. One more reference here. First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter five. And I throw this out not as an olive branch or as a uh, means of easing things, but hopefully as a mechanism by which we might enter into conversation, that we might redeem that conversation, that we might turn it upon itself so that we can be a powerful witness for the Lord. It says, prove all things and hold fast that which is good. Prove all things and hold fast that which is good. It doesn't matter if it's false religions or if it's society. A broken clock is right twice a day. At some point, there's going to be something there that is correct, where there's good value or, or, or whatever it may be. We can grab onto those things and we can use that to further the conversation for the glory of the Lord. Prove all things and hold fast that which is good. It demands of you and I that our worldview is well established. We're going to have a conversation about politics. Do we have a firm understanding of the way God thinks about politics or economics or ethics. There are certain things that we probably can speak about very well, but what does the Bible say about these other things that are broader topics that we encounter day in and day out? Prove all things and hold fast that which is good. We have to know the word of God to do this. The needs of the many it doesn't matter how many people are getting together. It doesn't matter how many people are marching in the protest, how many signs there are, how many people are pounding their fists. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And if it's right, it's right. And we stand on the side of the Lord, period. The required offering, because every idol has an offering that we have to give. Number one, for you and I as the believer, shame. We're going to have to give the offering of shame. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The first thing that we're going to be ashamed of is the gospel. This is the truth. The very fact that we'd be unwilling to stand up and say that thing, to take that conversation and to put it into action reveals within us some shame. That here's the gospel. This is the truth. This is the way that it really is, no matter what anybody says about it, but I'm unwilling to say it. If we're going to fall and we're going to worship the idol of society, believers, we're going to have to offer shame. We're going to live in an ashamed state. We're going to be in a state of conviction. 
as the Holy Spirit puts his finger on that thing that we've withheld, that we have not held up. Secondly, you and I as believers, we're going to have to offer relationship. Turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. We read this earlier, but let's look at it again. James chapter 4, verse 4. He says, you adulterers and adulteresses. Right? There's already compromise within the relationship. We've already turned to something else. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. For you and I as believers, we're going to have to offer the relationship that we have with our Lord. I'm not talking about losing salvation. I'm not talking about giving up something that we cannot lose. But what I am talking about is intimacy, is knowing Jesus well, that close relationship where I can come to him without any shame, without any concern, because I know he's never removed himself from us. Okay, don't, don't misunderstand me. Jesus isn't moving away as a result, but we will move away as a result. I've used this illustration before, but when our children learn, learn, quote unquote, to sin, how often do they hide, right? You sneak the cookies out of the pantry or, or the cookie jar, and you don't eat them out in the living room in front of mom and dad. You kind of sneak over here where nobody can see you, right? Because we understand that there is something wrong with what we're doing. We're not supposed to be sneaking in the cookie jar. We hide, we remove ourselves from Jesus when we perceive that conviction. We read about it in John chapter 3, right? That's the point where we don't like the light shining into the darkness because it reveals within us that we have fallen to idolatry. The works that we're doing right now are inconsistent with the profession of faith that we hold. We're going to succumb to the idol of man's belief. We're going to sacrifice relationship. Third, we're going to have fear. Second Timothy chapter one. Second Timothy chapter one. Verses 7 and 8, 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Right? That, that's the result for you and I as believers. That is what we have received from Jesus Christ at the moment that we were given salvation. We weren't given a spirit of fear. We were given one of power and of love and of sound mind. But what happens is that we succumb to fear. We yield ourselves to it. We have to offer that up. And we're going to live in fear that I'm going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing or somehow step on toes. I'm going to offend somebody. He goes on. 
Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. There's two commands there. Number one, don't be ashamed. Don't succumb to fear. Number two, be a partaker. When we stand against the demands of the idol of society, we're going to be a target. Just be prepared for it. God says of you and I, his people, that we are a peculiar people. We stand out, and it's okay for us to do so. It's appropriate, and it's an honor to do so. But just be prepared. Jesus again and again told his disciples, this is what's going to happen. And he says, I'm telling you this. So that when it does happen, you're not offended. You don't stumble and fall. And here we understand that we are going to be a target, that he's made it plain. In this world, you will have troubles. They persecuted the prophets. They're going to persecute you. And he told us that so that we would be able to stand. We wouldn't stumble. We wouldn't fail or fall, rather, when we encounter that hardship. The idol of society. This is a big one in the church. And while it may have originally be, have been motivated by an interest in sharing the gospel, the further we've stepped toward that idol, the further away we've come from our Lord. And we've just shifted right along, maybe two steps behind, but nonetheless, the church has changed all along. Second, so the second manifestation of man's belief, the idol of man's belief, evidence. Now, remember that, that an idol is anything that would replace God or, or make him less, okay? And I want to just, I want to put out this word of caution here as we're talking about evidences. We have to be careful because not all pursuit of evidence is wrong in and of itself. Uh, nor is it a useless tool in a gospel presentation. It can be a beneficial thing. But it can replace something. Okay? God has said to you and I, listen, here it is. I've given you my creation. This is a witness of me. And so the question that I ask is, where is our faith? Is my faith in the evidences that are out there that I've found that I can accumulate? Or is my faith over here in what God has said? Evidences can be encouraging to our faith. Evidences should not be our first pursuit. And here's the thing. It isn't true because of evidence. There is evidence because it is true. Turns me to James chapter 1, if you will. James chapter 1. <clears throat> Let's look at verse 8. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And I bring that up because here we are. If we're going to stand upon evidences and we're going to stand upon our faith in God, but we can't have one without the other. 
that if I don't have enough evidences, if I don't have enough things there, I've got nothing to stand on. In Hosea chapter 10, Hosea chapter 10. Now, listen, you're going to have to pause with me because it's going to take me a minute to find Hosea. Just going to be honest with you. It's right after Daniel. Hosea chapter 10. Verses, Hosea 10, verses 12 and 13. He says, sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, till he come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you did trust in thy way in the multitude of thy mighty men. Now, I just want to pause here for a moment. Let's, let's talk about Hosea for just a moment. This is the prophet that God commanded to go and take uh, this adulterous woman as his wife. Right? This is all a picture of Israel having forsaken God. And this is what he's saying. This is his condemnation to them. And in many respects, the church has said, listen, we're going to do the same thing. He, he says that we have trusted in our mighty men, we can trust it in what we have seen, what we can observe, what we can, what evidence there is out there. But we haven't trusted in God. And he says, listen, it's time to break up the fallow ground, right? That hard ground, that ground that has sat there idle. It's time to break it up. It's time to put the plow in and it's time to cut it to pieces, and it's time to let the word of God, and we, we look at the parable of Jesus and the sower and the seed. It's time to let the word of God, and that alone, truth, take root. In John chapter 20, if you'll turn there with me, John chapter 20, <clears throat> Verse 29 through 31. Jesus here is speaking with his uh, disciples. <clears throat> he's risen from the dead. He has appeared to the disciples. And here's Thomas, who was not there the first time. And he's, he's like, listen, I'm going to have to see it to believe it. That's his attitude. And Jesus encounters Thomas, and he says to him in verse 29, Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. A couple of things here that I want to talk about. Number one. We have this confirmation that here is the word of God, that there were signs and wonders, there were evidences, those things out there that were confirming, that were there written in scripture and recorded for us that we might believe. Among those we would find in uh, Psalm 19 verses 1 and 2, that God's creation, the firmament, and it declares his handiwork. I mean, it declares his glory and the firmament, his handiwork. 
that the creation of God is part of the witness of his existence and of who he is. Even his eternal power in Godhead, we would read in the book of Romans. So it's not off the table. But he tells Thomas, this is a faith issue, Thomas. You believed because you saw. You believed because you witnessed something. Blessed are they who believe but haven't seen. Now, you and I, we've never seen the risen Jesus. We haven't. I'm convinced that the last person, biblically speaking, the last person to see the risen Lord was Paul. But we haven't seen him, yet I believe. And I don't believe because of anything other than what the word of God has said. Not because it makes sense, not because somebody reasoned with me, not because somebody was logical enough in their presentation. No, I believe because it's a faith issue. And ultimately, when we're talking about evidences, it's still a faith issue. When we're talking about evidence, it lacks the presupposition of a biblical worldview. Does anybody know what those two presuppositions are? I know that everybody here knows what those are. Somebody say the first one. What is the first presupposition? The first thing we know is true. God exists. And what's number two? His word is true. God exists and his word is true. An evidential understanding or an evidential-based faith says that I need something confirming constantly that those things are true or my faith will slip. It's like this brick wall. We take evidence after evidence after evidence, and we stack them up. And let's face it, there are innumerable evidences out there. There is evidence out there because it is true. God has created everything with the order and the manner and the rules and restrictions. All of those things are by his design. So they're out there. And there's nothing wrong with knowing them. There's nothing wrong with having them. But what we do is we stack those evidences, whether they're scientific arguments uh, after scientific argument, whether it's evidence after evidence of, of creation, whatever it may be, we stack those evidences up trying to build an impenetrable, impenetrable wall for our weak faith. I know that's a pretty strong statement. But that's what we're doing. We're standing behind all this evidence because I don't have a faith that is established. And inevitably, here's what's going to happen. Somebody who knows more or has some other thing that you don't know about, that you're unfamiliar with, because you've elevated evidence to this idle position, that it has the same authority as the word of God, they're going to come and pull a brick out and everything's going to come tumbling down. Because your faith is unsure. You're this double-minded man standing on evidence and faith. And when you have nothing to stand on on one side, you're going to topple. There's a couple things we need to realize. First, in Isaiah chapter 55. Let's turn there for a moment. Isaiah chapter 55. Verses 8 through 11 in Isaiah 55, 
God tells the nation of Israel, and he tells you and I, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, your ways, my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and returns not thither, but waters the earth and makes it bring forth in bud, it may, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. So first off, we have to understand that God's ways are not our ways, that there is nothing limiting him. We see these evidences out there because they are true. But our faith is not established upon that. Our faith is established upon the word of God. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is true. That's the thing that establishes us. That's the thing that sets us apart. That's the thing that confirms us. In Psalm verse 19, excuse me, chapter 19, verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7, the evidences of the Lord are perfect, converting the soul. That's not what it says. It says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And it goes on beyond that. But ultimately, what happens is this. We're trying to stack enough evidences up in our, in our presentation of the gospel to convince somebody of its authenticity. The only thing that can do that is the word of God. Now, sometimes somebody may need a little nudge and an evidence or some scientific argument, something like that. Some reason in there may be that little nudge to help them come to an acceptance of truth. But ultimately, it's truth that's saving them, not the evidences that you present. In Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verses 151 through 152. Well, for being the longest book in the Bible, I sure having trouble finding it. There it is. Psalm 119, 151 and 152. Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are true. Concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that, they ha that thou hast founded them forever. Here's the word of God, and it is unchanging. That from the very beginning, it is God's revelation of man to, to mankind of everything that we need to know. How we should operate, how we should govern ourselves, how we should conduct ourselves, how we should worship God, how we come to faith in Jesus Christ, his redemptive purpose. And that's been decreed and recorded and preserved since the beginning of time. It's true because it is. Now, ooh, that's terrible. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15. You'll turn there for just a moment. 
Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9. This people draws nigh unto me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So here we have this entire people group, the, the nation of Israel, who is exalted and taking the understanding, the evidences that may be out there. And they made them doctrines, those things that are unshakable truths. And he says, that's false worship. That's idolatry. They're worshiping something other than me. They draw near me with their lips and pretense we're trying to stack up these evidences. But ultimately, it's a separation of our faith. It's a division of our faith. We're to worship God wholly and solely. In Matthew chapter 7, turn there with me. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus gives a little illustration of this very principle, of this same idea of that instability linked to having our faith built upon more than one thing. He says in Matthew chapter 7, beginning into verse 24, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. The foundations were there. They were established on something that was immovable, unchangeable, and unshakable. The word of God is all of that. It's unchanging. It's unshakable. That's what we build upon. He continues on, and everyone that hears these sayings of mine and does them not shall be likened to a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Great was the fall of it. Just like those Jenga blocks, you pull one out and everything crumbles. When we're attacked and we have elevated the understanding, the belief of mankind to the same authority as the word of God, when something happens, we're shaken to our core. We're just like this foolish man who built his house upon the stand. And when something happened, when the rains came, when everything went south, it falls out from under us. And here's something I want you to notice. And it came to pass, verse 28. When Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Now, you, you need to go back and read about everything that he's talking about here. But ultimately, this is the key thing. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, consider the scribes. They're, they're very familiar. Their job is to copy the word of God. They knew it in and out. If all you did was copy the Bible every day, multiple times a day, You'd become so familiar with it, you would almost know what the next word is before you wrote it down. But these scribes were so zealous that they didn't want to do that. They were very careful and they knew the word of God, yet they had no authority. Because they were standing upon something else. Yet here is Jesus Christ teaching truth, solely the word of God, 
he is the word, John chapter one. And there's a different authority. close this morning talking about the requisite offerings of the idol of evidence. First, we're going to have to give up faith. We're going to have to give up faith because we're placing faith in something else. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Normally, when we go to Romans chapter 1, we're talking about non-believers. We're talking about those who uh, suppress truth and unrighteousness, who are unwilling to accept that Jesus Christ is the singular way, that he is the way to God, and that God has revealed himself in such a way that we would have no excuse. That's usually why we come here. Let's read verses 16 and 17 in Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. If we're going to live our life by what we can see, taste, observe, replicate, fill in the blank, by evidence, then we have to give up faith. But you and I who are justified, you and I who are born-again believers, we walk by faith and not by sight. Second, we're going to give up, we're going to have to offer assurance on that altar. Assurance. Now, Christianity, amongst all other religions in the world, is the only one that offers certainty of our salvation. Because it's the only one that is one and done, and not many and maybe. Turns me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's read verses 19 through 23. Having therefore, brethren, boldness. That means, that word boldness means free and fearless confidence. Boldness enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart or an undivided heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. If we're going to stand upon evidences, those things which we can see, taste, touch, feel, duplicate, whatever it may be, we're going to have to give up assurance. Because inevitably, there's going to be some new discovery, some new thing, some new interpretation of science, whatever it may be, somebody who just knows more than you or some evidence that you're unfamiliar with, and that's going to shake your world. And now you're going to have to go back and shore up all those evidences and do all the study and all the work when all we really needed to do was be established in our faith. 
be established in the word of God. Operate in the presupposition that God exists and his word is true. And anything contrary to those two things is somehow misinterpreting the facts. It's true because it's true. Not because there's evidence. We're going to have to give up assurance if we're going to worship the idol of evidence. Third, we're going to give up authority. Now, we already talked about Jesus and his authority, he being the word of God in the flesh. But you and I as believers stand upon that same authority. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, that we are his ambassadors. We're his representatives. We come in this world representing the King of kings and Lord of lords. There is a certain amount of authority that we, as ambassadors, have. And if we're going to stand up on the evidences, we're giving up that authority. Turns me to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 3, we find the... Uh, Peter and John going into the temple and they see the man uh, who has been lame from birth and they take her by the hand they silver and gold have I none but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth rise up and walk and they pull him up says immediately his ankle bones received strength and they running and leaping and praising God right that's what happened And Peter and John are taken prisoner by the religious leaders in Israel. Because here they are preaching Christ. There is no evidence that says this man should ever have been able to walk. There is nothing there. It contradicts all science, all known anything. We can't replicate it. It's unobservable. There it is, a miracle, something that God himself has done. In Acts chapter 4, we find John and Peter and John standing before these uh, religious elites that are there on trial, as it were, for having done something right and good. Let's pick it up in verse 7 of Acts chapter 4. And when they had sent, uh, had set them in the midst, they asked them, by what power or by what name have you done this? In other words, by what authority did you, Peter and John, heal this man? And Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name or under the authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which the builders set it not of you, uh, which is become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. He says there's only one authority, and the only authority that we can do anything by is Jesus Christ. When we stand on some other authority, when we stand upon the evidences, those things, we elevate it to a position of authority that it does not hold. 
He continues on. Now, when they saw, this is their response as they hear Peter. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were just like me, unlearned and ignorant men. Right? They, these guys are fishermen. They're from Nazareth. Excuse me, Galilee. Jesus was from Nazareth. They're from Galilee, which is considered like subhuman. They're the rednecks of Israel. They're the hillbillies. They're the backcountry. Bucktooth, that's them. That's how they're viewed. Yet here it is. They see this boldness. There's an authority that is given them by Jesus Christ that is supernatural. Something above anything that they could have. And it's observed. Not because they had evidences, not because they had anything to stand upon, but the truth. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of, the, of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. When they saw the effects of the actual authority of Jesus Christ, there was nothing they could do. So here we are as believers, and we have to offer faith, assurance, and authority. Everything that we are granted at salvation on the altar of evidence. If that's where our faith is going to be rooted and established, we have to give it all up. Or... We could put the word of God back in its original place as the sole and whole truth. And we could stand firmly upon that. We can operate in faith and in trust that just as the book of Hebrews says in chapter 11, verse 4, that by faith we see that God made everything from nothing. That by faith we are born again, we are saved, not by the evidences that may have been presented us and as a result of that because it is something that is completely and wholly finished we have the firm assurance the confidence the unwavering certainty that we are in fact saved that we have been exchanged from death to life and we as believers as the ambassadors of the living god can stand in the authority of Jesus Christ. We can, like Peter and John, speak with boldness and let that boldness be a witness to those around us that they will take notice that we have been with Jesus. There's no evidence in the world that will do that. There's no scientific fact that can convince people of that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. And God, I praise you for your word. Lord, I pray that I'm not heavy-handed. And I pray that your spirit, Lord, has worked and moved where it needed to. I pray that we would be challenged and equipped. Not because of sharp words or because of catchy sayings, but Lord, because your spirit has been at work, because truth has been spoken. And Lord, if there's anywhere that needs correction, Lord, I pray that you would bring that to my attention. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us in your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you for the certainty 
of the salvation that he has purchased freely on our behalf. And Lord, as we have opportunity now to worship and to give thanks, adoration and praise for who he is and what he's done, Lord, I pray that we would be cemented, concreted in our position in respect to you, that you are the sovereign, that you alone are worthy of worship, Lord, that you would move in and through us to remove idols that we have held on to. Maybe there's others besides the two, the, the few that we've talked about this morning. Lord, we trust that you would make us your people. That as your word says, that we are to be conformed into the image of your son, that that is our predetermined destiny as your children. Have your way within us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.